0: Number four, Psalms, first quarter, 2024,
1: John Pauline. Welcome to Pine Knoll. Before we begin lesson four, which is on the Psalms of Deliverance, Jane is going to offer a prayer.
2: Let us pray. Kind and loving Father, in the mighty name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we come before your presence this Sabbath morning. We are so thankful, we are so grateful that you love us so much and you've already delivered us. We are excited to have you, Lord, as our Savior and our God. This morning, dear Lord, as we are going to discuss this lesson, we ask that you are going to be in our midst. We want to pray, Lord, for Professor John Pauline as he's going to guide us through this discussion. My Lord, I pray that you are going to inspire him with knowledge that comes from above, Oh God. And dear Lord, we want to pray for the salvation of very many souls across the world, O God, who are perishing in sin. We pray that whenever these waves, Lord, will be heard, that our soul will be delivered. Dear Lord, I pray that you will bless the final family. And this morning, dear Lord, as we are going ahead with our discussion, how we ask, O Lord, that there will be a fruitful success, O God, and by the end of it all, I pray that the warmth of your presence will cheer us all in our Christian walk. This is our sincere prayer this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen.
3: This is the fourth in a series of 13 studies on the biblical book of Psalms, a collection of 150 songs, poems, prayers. To God and so forth. And I had some insights this week that I wish I'd had earlier, because if I had to do it all over again, what I'm about to share with you would be the opener of number one. But I think that this is definitely worth doing even now. And it is this I think you can learn a lot about a person from the kind of friends they hang around with. And with that in mind, God's choice of friends in the Old Testament. Is definitely surprising. Abraham, for one, he tried to pimp his wife, if you understand that term. Jacob cheated his brother, fought with God physically. Moses was a murderer. David was a murderer and an adulterer. Job, Jeremiah, and Jonah were chronic complainers. And God had major arguments with Abraham and Moses and sometimes let them win. So, I mean, if you're thinking in terms of what kind of friends God keeps, I think that's a rather surprising list. But then along come the psalmists. And you add the psalmists to God's list of friends, and it gets even more interesting. In the psalms, God's friends complain about God, have doubts, paranoia, meanness. They express delight, hatred. Praise, vengefulness, betrayal, one at least has fantasies about killing babies. They express childlike faith, anger toward God, confusion, confession, cursing, a whole list of human emotions we never talk about in church. And that's a book of the Bible. It's a listing of God's friends. I think one of the most helpful descriptions of the Psalms is as spiritual diaries. It's as if the Psalmists are sitting down and just reflecting on their walk with God in poetry. The question I have, as we look at the Psalms and look at God's list of Old Testament friends, what does it tell us about God? It's an open question. With this kind of a list of friends, what do we learn about God? All right, Lou.
4: God didn't have anybody else to work with down here except sinners. We're all sinners, and he saw their potential for good. And he loves everybody, as the lesson brought out where Graham Maxwell talks about. God doesn't just love his good children. He loves all of his children. And so I think it just tells us that God does the best with those of us. He can work through, and we're all damaged goods, but he's the healer.
5: All right. Thank you. Arthur. I would say that God is not the type of person that his enemies claimed he is. Of course, that is what Graham would have said. He is not arbitrary. He is not vengeful. He is not exacting. He is not severe. He is not unforgiving. He is a lovely person that even a person that's struggling with issues would be delighted to be in his company. Let me just end by saying, I am just wondering why. Even when we notice that God is always in bad company in the Bible, for some reason, when we come to maybe our community as Christians, we somehow cannot put that into practice, like become like what God was in the Bible. So we know he was friends with people that struggle, but for some reason, we don't tolerate such people. Thank you, Arthur. All right, Terry.
1: I love that list of characteristics that Arthur highlighted for us that Graham always used, using those descriptive words of what God is not. But as he was going through that, I began to think of the descriptors of what God is. He is open, he is patient, he is inclusive, and he is instructive.
6: All right, thank you, Bob. Well, taking the prior list, Actually, you could add to it Nebuchadnezzar. And then on the other extreme, you could have Enoch and Methuselah and all of them. So then you could say, well, then everybody could be God's friend if they wanted to be. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the questions I have is if there are cultures and parts of the world that really haven't been exposed to God as much, there are islands in the Pacific and you could go to New Guinea and places like that where there hasn't been much penetration I know we've discussed in the past that God has a way through the Holy Spirit of reaching people, and maybe in the hereafter we'll find out God had a lot more friends than we knew. But it seems like everybody could be God's friend if they were willing to be. I like that way of phrasing it. It seems to me
3: that God cares more about relationship than about behavior. Doesn't I mean behavior is unimportant, but when you look at the behaviors of some of God's friends. He seems to care more about maintaining relationship than about some of the specifics in that person's past.
6: Livius. I love how you opened with the idea that you can tell a lot about a person by the friends he has. And that list of God's friends, I remember when I was in high school and even in my professional life, You hang out with a group of friends and you kind of talk the same way. You do some of the similar things. You engage in a group. There's this group dynamic that develops of the kinds of things that this group of friends does, if you will. And it could be good. It could be bad. It could be in the middle. I used to hang out with some friends at work that had a filthy mouth. And I also had a filthy mouth. And I think what's awesome about God is that he's that friend that we all look up to and want to be like. And he drops himself into the human friends group, quote unquote. And when we're his friends, we only aspire to be like him. I think that's why he wants us to be his friend is because when we're in his friend group, we all will start to think like him, uh, talk like him, behave like him. So I think it's awesome that he wants us to be his friend, which is, I think, something that uh, Graham talked a lot about. No, it seems to me that what we can learn from the Psalms is
3: that God appreciates authenticity almost above all else. And it's interesting that church life so often seems to move people in a direction of hiding their true self. We want to be that person that we're supposed to be. We want to fit in, etc., And in so doing, we hide a portion of ourselves. That's not what the psalmists do. A number of these psalms will probably never be read in church, simply because they don't seem to fit what church is supposed to be. But God, it seems, loves authenticity more than anything else. And someone who comes to God authentically seems to please him a great deal. Jane.
2: I just want to look at Peter and Judas. See how Jesus labored with his friends. He longed that each one of them would come to salvation. And I'm happy because Peter was able to look at the view of Jesus, especially even after resurrection, when he says, do you love me? then look after my sheep. So Jesus is looking out for us as his friends, just like he did for Peter. But we also have choices like Judas. He, although Jesus kept following him and telling him the consequences of not being a true friend, he chose the other way. So that's how I would like to look at God through the view of Jesus and friendships. Thank you.
7: Thank you. Henry? On the list of individuals that you were mentioning, based on the Bible, that were listed as God's friends, David and all of them, I think that God had the option to hang out only with good people. This is the only planet in the whole universe that was playing with this kind of people that we are. So he obviously had the opportunity to make better choices If we will consider that the way that we may be raising our children, right? Choose good, your friends. But the fact that he wanted to hang out with us is not because he didn't have a choice. It's because he made the choice, which makes the difference. It is intentional. It's not just because he was not having any more options, but it was his option to make it and not only make it, but make it public not even just doing it in the darkness, but make it public because we are a theater for the universe. So that tells me that he has an intention to show exactly what type of people he is, what type of person he is, that he makes no distinction because he not only have bad friends in the earth, he also had good guys like the job and others, right? So I think that when looking at the definition in the dictionary, I found on the Merriam-Webster that friend is one that is not an enemy, one that there is no hostility. So to me, that is an important element. Okay, I don't have to have only good people to be friends. I can choose anybody, but not being hostile to them. That's one of the elements. And in the Spanish dictionary, I found a definition that I like. It is the personal affect, pure and unselfish that is shared with other person, meaning he's not looking for anything out of us when he's looking in a friend of us. He's looking to what he can give to us. And I think that's the choice that we can make so many times in life. We choose the people for what we can get out of them instead of what we can give and share with them. That's what I think is the definition, the reason why he has chosen to be friends of us in spite of the type of people that we are.
3: Henry, I'd like to put your comment alongside Lou's back at the beginning, because I found that a fascinating contrast. Lou highlighted the idea that God is almost stuck with us in a sense. This is who we are, and so he's got us, you know. And that for me was enlightening in the sense that even if God is stuck with us at the same time, he doesn't treat us any differently. He's just as gracious, et cetera. So that was a nice starter. But then, Henry, you just broadened God's field of choice and reminded us that there are planets unbounded where he won't have this kind of problematic friends. And yet God chose to be deeply engaged with this planet. So you know, I love what both of you said, putting them side by side, I think was enlightening for me. So thank you, both of you. Michael.
8: In my view, represent the everyday problems and difficulties that everybody faces from time to time, whether it's a circumstance concerning a relationship with another person, their job, whatever it may be. We all want to complain and along the lines of, you know, I'm praying about something, I've been complaining to God about something for over two years now, and still no result. I want to say, Are you paying attention? I'm here. You know, I need your assistance. But I think that's just the human condition.
3: Well, Michael, you brilliantly just went and answered the question I hadn't asked yet. (laughs) And that's the question: what does this list of God's friends tell us about us? And I think you answered it just so well. Let me highlight that then. What I see in the Psalms is not messages straight from God that speak in ultimate sense. What I see in the Psalms, as I mentioned, is like spiritual diaries. It's the real-life experience of real-life people. And it's people who are trying to align what they believe with what they experience. We don't often talk about this in church. But I think the typical Christian's experience is times when you're really close to God, times when you feel his presence, times when everything is going well. And then times when God doesn't seem to be there, times when God is absent, times when everything is going wrong. And that's normal. That's experience with God. And that's what the psalmist experienced. You read through the Psalms, and in one of them, God is abandoned. And another one, oh, he's so close. I don't know if I can handle it. And back and forth, though we don't often admit it, I think our lives tend to be a seesaw between God's presence and God's absence. And the Psalms just come right down to the raw human experience that we almost never talk about. So thank you, Michael, for leading our minds to that insight. And I would add one more thing as we move toward a closure on this opening idea. And that is, it seems to me from all these friends of God and from the Psalms that God wants to send a message. And that message is, don't avoid me because of anything you've done or said. I'm not driven away from friendship because of anything you have done or anything you have said. If you haven't murdered 201 innocent people yet like David has, there's hope for you. Okay, God has not abandoned you yet. So I think a strong message that the Psalms gives us is God wants no one to avoid him because of what they have done, or thought, or said. And I probably need to hear that message every day. Rita.
0: Some of the psalms to me are more like journaling. They start off with the, oh, woe is me, I feel terrible, and what's happening, or vice versa. And then, as that is externalized, functions and reason kind of kick in. And some of these psalms end up with this Hugely positive note, which counters completely counters and overtakes the gloom and despondency at the beginning of them. It's more than diarying,
3: hmm So it's a journaling that goes somewhere and ends somewhere. But we have looked at a couple of psalms already where there is no happy ending. It simply ends with kind of a well, God, <laughs> you know, I can't see you.
0: Some of them show this idea of journaling and how conscience and reason kick in. And they remember things from the past that means that they don't have to be worried about what they've been worried about. And others don't. They just end because they can't see through it.
3: Yeah, my impression is the Psalms are not neatly managed by God to give a specific theological or experiential advice to all people in all times. The Psalms are an ad hoc collection of life experience with God in all of its ramifications, positive, negative, joyful, sad, angry, etc. So the Psalms are pretty exciting in that way. One thing that really struck me this week, you talk to people the way the psalmist talked to God only if you really trust them. When you're in the presence of someone you don't trust, you don't usually tell the truth or the full truth about yourself or your problems. If you don't trust a person, you keep a lot of things to yourself. The psalmists never kept anything to themselves. Sometimes we wish they had. We'll get to one of those in the next week or two. But the psalmists are completely open emotionally to God. And we're very careful about sharing our emotions. Because people often tend to slap you down when you do. And so we do it when we truly trust someone. So the Psalms are expressing the ultimate idea of trust in God. And recognizing that that trust in God includes telling the truth about yourself. And telling the truth about how you feel about God. And telling the truth about how you feel about other people. God can work with you to manage any situation, but if you're not willing to actually look the situation in the eye, there's a limit to what God can do for you. So the Psalms are expressions of deep trust that God will not misuse what the psalmists have done or said or thought. All right, Lou.
4: One of the most comforting things to me, is that God knows me better than I know myself. He knows my potential for evil and for good. And I can take everything to him. I can't imagine people that don't experience that in a real way with God, that you can take everything to Him, your good, your bad, your indifference, your joy, your sorrow, everything, and He understands, and He loves us through it all. He gives us the kind of support and comfort. That we need through the Holy Spirit and our guardian angels, the protection, and like some of the Psalms that we studied for today to gather us as little chicks under a mother's wings. I'm just so grateful, and it gives me such a sense of peace and value that I'm His child. And it's just a wonderful experience. And I just could hope and pray for everybody that every human could have that experience of peace and joy in Him.
3: All right. Aaron?
9: Sometimes reading the Psalms, we wonder about why is this included in God's Word? Is this prescriptive or descriptive? But then the thought occurred to me, if the Psalms only had the positive, the full trust experience delineated, then we would read them and wonder, am I a Christian? What's wrong with me? Hmm.
3: Very good, Aaron. Really appreciate that, that summarization. What I was trying to express, I think, is that we trust God not only in the times when we're positive, but to share with God the most difficult things is also an evidence of trust. And that's what I think we see in the Psalms. The psalmist felt safe with God, that they could express their innermost thoughts, even the one that was fantasizing about taking Babylonian babies and throwing them against the wall. I mean, that's a repulsive passage, if you're looking to it for instruction on how to live. But as an expression of someone's trust in God, that's a different story. And I think that that puts a perspective on it that can be
5: helpful. Arthur. Psalm 37 verse 25, it says, I've been young and now I'm old, but I've never seen a righteous person abandoned or his descendants begging for food. I struggled with this verse at at a certain point, because uh, in my country, that's Zimbabwe, we once went through a very difficult economic crisis around about 2008, where there was nothing to buy in the shops, like literally empty, and you know, the prices could change even in an hour. So you'd have maybe some Christian brothers come maybe on a Sabbath and then they use a scripture like this in a testimony to say, I've gone, since this crisis started, I've never missed a meal. I've never had any issues. So God is always faithful. Even David says he's never seen a righteous person abandoned or his children begging bread. And maybe in my situation, in someone else's situation, they are barely going through each day, they have nothing to eat. And now you have to ask yourself, is it because I'm not righteous? Is it because there's something that I'm doing wrong that God is not giving me even just a basic meal? If he seems to be taking care of others, why is he not taking care of me? But I appreciate that we are in this lesson recognizing that the Psalms are not just painting one rosy picture of reality, of this life that we are having, there's also times of despair and of confusion and of pain where we even wonder whether God can hear us. And I find that that is pretty much accurate. So maybe I'm only saying if only people could like show the complete picture that this is what it's all about, there's good and there's the bad, but God is there in all situations. Thank you. That's, I think, why Ellen White
3: said, follow the Bible as a whole Bible. If you can take parts and select them out, you can sometimes get the wrong impression. I say this playfully, but is it possible that the psalmist you referred to, Arthur, was suffering a bit from dementia? In other words, he said, I'm old now. And uh, sometimes when you get older, you forget things. And at the moment when he's writing, he's forgotten some of the hardships and some of the gaps in his experience, et cetera. But you see, that's what the Psalms are all about. It isn't a carefully managed prescription for life. It is diaries, if you wish. It is prayers, if you wish. But it's real life people struggling with the fact that life experience doesn't always add up to what they believe. And here a psalmist expresses a belief, God is so good that we couldn't possibly go hungry. You know, that's not the God I know. And yet maybe that person has been hungry and just forgot at that moment or didn't remember at that moment. So in our highs, we sometimes forget the lows. And in our lows, we can't remember the highs. And the psalms, perhaps the right psalm for you is the one that counters the extreme that you find yourself in today. All right, let's move ahead to number one in the handout, where it says one could call the theme for this week the Psalms of Rescue or Deliverance. Praying for Deliverance operates on the assumption that prayer makes a difference in one's life and in the lives of others. And as such, that's the opposite of deism. We talked a little bit a while back about different pictures of God And deism is the idea that God created the world, but then decided to give his creatures so much freedom that God essentially backed out of the picture. All right. So if you're a deist, you believe in God and you believe that the world is good and that God means good. But you also believe that prayer doesn't make a difference because God has let the world go its own way. Prayer assumes that God makes a difference. And so let me just briefly give you the broad philosophical picture here. At one extreme of this is deism, where there's no point in praying because God is not engaged with the world for his own purposes. It doesn't mean God is evil. It's just God has put the world there and says, okay, I want you to govern this world and take it wherever you want it to go. And let's run an experiment here. At the other end is determinism. And determinism says that God micromanages everything. Every experience of your life is just exactly the way God wanted it to be in his ultimate purpose. And under that picture, if you fall down the stairs, the best response is, well, God, I'm glad that's over with because it was planned from the beginning, you see. So those are the two extremes, deism, determinism. In between, you have emphases. The Calvinist emphasis is more on God's sovereignty that God really manages everything in great detail. The Arminian side is on the other side, that God gives us freedom and God gives us creativity and God intervenes in a sense as little as possible. And Seventh-day Adventists tend to be on the Arminian side of that emphasis. The Bible talks about God's sovereignty, talks about human freedom, but Adventists tend to be more like the deists than like the determinists. And in that case, prayer makes a difference, at least sometimes. And yet God is looking to us to manage our way, following his guidance, but manage our way to a large degree. So in that context, then, I ask this question. How do you see prayer working out in this balance between God's sovereignty and our freedom? What difference does prayer make? How does that all work together? I'm not looking for a sophisticated answer. That's a really tough question that the sophisticated ones have not resolved. But I think it's good for us
5: to grapple at that level. Arthur? I'm not attempting to give correct response, but let me maybe try to quote Ellen White who says prayer is the opening of the heart to God as to a friend. And then I reflect on A friend of mine, a brother of mine that I usually go and visit at least once a week, we just spend time together and we just talk about anything regarding my life, regarding his life. And what's meaningful is not necessarily that he gives me the solution of all maybe my challenges. Of course, if that happens, I'll be very grateful. But what's more important to me and as well as to him, is the time that we spend together where we get to know each other and in speaking about all these issues i end up maybe having a better understanding of who he is and vice versa so i find that i'm always looking forward to the visit every week and spend time with him and when i'm away from that meeting i'm always looking forward to the time when we meet together so i'm hoping That's the same way I'm relating to God in prayer, where I speak to God as I speak to my friend. So
3: you're emphasizing the relationships of prayer more than, say, you know, let's see what God can do, but more just to be with God and let God decide what he will do. All right, Ashley.
9: Yeah. Well, I certainly don't have the answers for what exactly happened. I think that's probably always going to be so much of a mystery. Like, I definitely don't think. I expect, you know, every single prayer to be answered as if like, if I request it, it's going to happen because, you know, the world's a complicated place and you don't know the bigger picture and what's really going on. And so not knowing exactly what God's will is, I guess I try to be open-minded and be like, well, if it's fit as your will and if it's the best thing I can ask and, you know, hope for the best. And there's always going to be a mystery, like I said. But on the other hand, I also feel like sometimes just me asking, I don't know how prayer works, like I said, but sometimes I think just like asking is powerful or taking that time to reflect on what you want and what your maybe needs are. And, and having that ritual of prayer is important to so many other things, no matter like what happens. So even though we may never know exactly how prayer works, I think there's so many other things that make prayer so important and healthy to being human. So it's interesting how Again, coming from a science background, how the things they found out about prayer, how healthy and beneficial that is. And so, yeah, I think, like, never know. But I try to keep in mind that there's so many other reasons, even if not every prayer goes answered, or I don't think that's like the healthiest way to approach prayer, but still, it is an important thing that it's worthwhile and keeping a part of my walk with God daily routine. So, yeah,
3: yeah, you know, reflecting on what you said. On the Armenian side of the perspective, the idea is that God prefers more often than not. Let me say it that way. God prefers more often than not to let us work things out. We're not deists, but at the same time, we recognize the freedom and the creativity of humans is extremely important to God. So, on the Armenian side, to expect that God would answer every prayer with an action is contrary to. Our faith in which we have a God of freedom and giving of sovereignty, etc. If you're on the more Calvinistic side, then you would expect more steady answers and more direct intervention on God's part. So I think where we come to these issues can be helpful in terms of how prayer works in our lives. All right, Jane. I'm
2: coming from a point of interacting with people on a daily basis. Who sometimes don't believe in prayer at all they just say what will happen will just happen and like if they have a patient and the patient is sick like let's talk about cancer and you know this is terminal so they are asking you so why should I still pray to god and they struggle with this so i personally struggled with this until i got to the point that I will still choose to pray because it's not about me. Mm-hmm. It's not mm-hmm. about the event, but it's about the sovereignty of God in my life. And having settled at that, I know praying does not override my freedom. I know praying gives God a chance to be glorified. That even though I don't get an answer, even though my patient doesn't like recover from that cancer, but still God is glorified. And I have uh, both extremes of those who have chosen to trust in God, even in extremes, like even though they died, but it's better for those that died with hope than those who just Died because nothing could be done. So I just want to say prayer never overrides any human freedom. If anything, it makes us stronger just to know that I'm going through a situation, but I'm not alone, that the power of the universe is together with me. And that's my experience in prayer.
3: I like that. In prayer, I am not alone. Thank you. Michael
8: yeah, in my view, my prayer is conversing with God, and I tell God things that I don't tell anybody else, and it's not that I'm holding great, deep secrets; it's more about my emotional response to circumstances, and uh, And some of it is prayers of supplication, you know, do this, fix that, that kind of thing. And in that regard, I remember being told as a very young man, that maybe when you ask God for something, maybe the answer is no. And keep that in mind. But most of all, it is this notion of having a very close and personal relationship with God. And I can make of it what I make of it. And the ending scene in the movie, Oh God, there is God played by George Burns and then John Denver. And Denver asking, he says, Can't we talk anymore? And his response is, Yes, you talk, I'll listen.
7: And that's really what it is. Thank you. Henry. I will echo Ashley's words. I have no idea how all of this works. I don't claim to have an answer, but I have an experience. And my opinion of prayer has been evolving throughout my entire life of Christianity and getting to know God. I remember being a child and asking. Prayer to me was asking, my list of asks for forgiveness, for things that I needed, for problems I couldn't solve myself, for the impossible, just got to Him. And then started modifying that until the point that I am now. That I don't believe in prayer anymore. And let me clarify that I don't have prayer as anything special. I don't think prayer has any power. I just know that that's the communication line that I have with God. It's just call it prayer, call it a intergalactic phone. Call it whatever way you want, but to me, it's just the way that I have to communicate with God and that He has to communicate with me. I don't have to go to a ritual to do it three times a day before the meals and before to go to bed. And when I wake up, I can do it all the time. And sometimes my wife asks, Are you not gonna give things for the meal? Say, so Oh, I already did. I didn't see you bowing down and closing your eyes. I don't have to do that. My brain was engaged in that process when I was preparing in the middle, putting everything together, because that's the conversation that I consistently having. So I don't go with him with asking for solutions for my problems or to do this or to do that to me. Because I know that in order for him to solve a problem that I have, he will need to meddle in something and probably take that from somebody else. And I give him the freedom to continue to speak not only to me, because I believe that he does that. With everybody, he is trying to reach, I believe that the Holy Spirit is talking to everybody in the world. And if somebody needs to do something, the person was willing to listen to what God was telling them to do for me. And if they didn't do it, it was not God not doing it. It was the person that didn't want to listen to what God was asking them to do through the Holy Spirit. So to me, it's just a relational consistent activity that occurs all of the time. In many occasions, I'm not even aware that he's talking to me, but he's bombarding me always with, true nature, through the stuff that I am reading, informing me so I can make decisions that are guided by him. So that's how I perceive a prayer, a relational and not a tool and not a magic one that does things, that has power, because the one that is behind that is, to me, more important than how do we do it. All right, then. I agree that this is a complicated question,
10: but maybe I could put it into a different framework. I think that there are two worlds that exist here on earth. There's a world that's controlled by Satan and one that's controlled by God, more or less. And that I think at times people who are, because of being raised that way or where they're at in their development, live in the world of Satan or basically underneath his influence. And they pray. And I must say, I prayed maybe while I was in that existence, that God would help me in a test or help me in some other thing. And it would seem to me that nothing happened. And I think God heard the prayer, but it would have been inappropriate for him to intervene while I was on that side of the fence, I think. And so I lived in a world of chance and happenstance, and that's the world that Satan has created. And I think when one gets tired of living in that world, And wants to move into the world that God has said exists, then God can begin to answer prayers. And it seems to me the kind of prayers that one asks when one enters that world are hopes for not better grades or whatever else one might ask, but it's to ask for patience, to ask that we become more kind. And those are the kind of prayers that I think God promises to answer. It's a whole different kind of request that we have to make our lives more effective. So, those prayers I believe God delights in answering, but He can't answer those prayers if we're on the other side of the fence and we're really living in Satan's kingdom. Anyway, I think sometimes it does make a difference. God hears, I think, all prayers, but He can only answer some prayers in one way, as I've said before. And for those who are part of His kingdom, He answers those, I think, in a different way. All
3: right. Thank you. Let me summarize a bit this whole determinism versus the complete freedom tension for me a helpful thing was reading john 6 where jesus has an interaction with the crowds and talks about god's determining his life and yet his freedom at the same time that the two are neatly contrasted and i like to summarize it this way when i look to the past it's clear that God has made a huge difference in who I am and where I am. When I look to the future, it's clear that I have decisions to make. So both of those are regularly true. And we see God's hand sometimes in our past. But looking forward, there are also choices to make. So there'll always be something of a tension between those two. I'd like to transition at this point, and let's experience a couple of psalms and reflect on them briefly. Before we do that, Rita had a comment.
0: Talking of prayer and often our requests to God always reminds me of a short scene in one of the films where Morgan Freeman played God. The human, if you like, asks God, well, give me patience, give me patience. And God says, I'm not going to give you patience, but there will be circumstances where you can learn patience.
3: Thank you. All right, let's take a look at Psalm 139 and verses 1 to 18. Psalm 139, 1 to 18.
1: O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light around me become night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me, when none of them as yet existed. How weighty to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! I try to count them. They are more than the sand. I come to the end. I am still with you.
3: So this psalm is probably the single passage in all of Scripture that most details God's intimate and detailed knowledge of each of us. God has complete and accurate knowledge of every thought, every intention, every action, and the timing of each one of those. So there's nothing in our thoughts, nothing in our intentions, nothing in our actions that is outside the knowledge And presence of God. God is everywhere, from the rising of the sun to the far reaches of the sea. That's east to west in the ancient way of thinking. God is everywhere. There's no place you can go where he doesn't follow. In fact, he even follows into the womb. He knows what's going on in there with the fetus. And his knowledge is completely infinite. He has full control of our lives. As the motto of Painal says God is infinitely powerful and equally gracious. He fully knows our circumstances and has the means to help. I want to read Psalm 121, which is number three as well. But before I do, let me just phrase the question and let you think about it. And then we'll come to you after the reading of the second Psalm. And the question is this. It's at the end of number two in your handout. Is God's complete and intimate knowledge of us a source of encouragement or of fear? And I'll invite you to speak to that in a moment. Keep your finger in Psalm 139 if you have that kind of Bible. And let's read Psalm 121.
1: I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where will my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. and forevermore.
3: All right, so Psalm 139 was saying that God knows everything there is to know about us. Psalm 121 says that God is infinitely powerful and that he's engaged in every detail of our lives. He's constantly alert to our life's journey. He shades us from the heat. His right hand which is the stronger hand, the hand of action, is in our behalf. So a question that comes up here is, why doesn't God do something if all this is true? Why doesn't he do something? Why is there this silence at times, this absence, etc.? So we have a couple of Psalms that speak very much to daily experience and raise some important questions. So the one question was that complete knowledge that God is should we be afraid of that or is it a source of encouragement and how would that be the case and then the question why doesn't god do more if god knows everything and is able to do everything why doesn't he do more so just some reflections on either or both of those terry
1: That question that you said, why doesn't God do something? Immediately, I thought of Habakkuk, where Habakkuk asks God the very same question. God, why don't you do something? We're in such a bad place here. And I love God's answer. He said, I am doing something, but you wouldn't believe me if I told you. That is so encouraging to me. That gives me such peace and competence that God knows all the things that are going on that, like Ashley mentioned earlier, we can't possibly know or be aware of everything that's going on. But God is, and he's working behind the scenes, and he's not working behind the scenes against us. He is working behind the scenes for us.
3: All right. In Psalm 121, this is one of those Psalms of Ascent, they're called when people were marching up to Jerusalem for one of the feast holidays, et cetera. And as they're marching up to Jerusalem, you know, they're marching up through a valley, they're looking up in the hills, and they're seeing pagan shrines. So I look to the hills, where do my strengths come? And the answer is, no, no, not from the hills. My strength comes from the Lord, the Lord of hosts, et cetera. So as they're viewing these pagan shrines, the message of the psalm is God is bigger and he's better. In the pagan religions, the gods were pretty much like us with all of our foibles and problems. And they were powerful, but they were not all powerful. And so the message of the psalm is God is bigger than these pagan gods. He's more powerful than they are. And he's also better than the pagan gods who are just as Difficult to deal with as human beings are. They're superheroes. You all heard about the superhero, the big rage these days in movies is the superheroes, which are all made up. But it's the whole idea of a human being in most cases that is far more powerful and yet just as messed up <laughs> in most cases as any other human being, just like the pagan gods. And this psalm is No, God is infinitely powerful. He's also equally. Gracious. And so the Christian church from the beginning has said about God, He is great and He is good. And those were answers to the whole pagan religious world, which is very much alive today. Ashley.
9: So, as to your question about how it makes you feel when you read a verse like this that says, God knows all, I assume the individual response is going to differ depending on your circumstance, maybe what you do and don't feel be personally guilty about and and I think your perspective on God and what kind of God he is right (laughs) like if he is this dictator that's judging you and watching your every move and if you make a mistake he's going to condemn you like I think that could be a very Mm -hmm. threatening thing to read but if you have a loving perspective of God where he's accepting of you no matter what you do and he's just grateful to like help you in any way he can like maybe that's not such a scary thing to know he knows all maybe that's like a helpful thing to know that he loves you in spite of everything so I assume that's probably a very personal response you're gonna have to reading something like that and it's your other question about why like yeah like I think Terry was saying it uh, we don't know what's and going on, and why God doesn't answer our prayers or why He doesn't do more in these circumstances. I think that's always going to be an open question and something we struggle with. And I think that's okay. And I think it's meaningful to just ask the questions and to press God about it. Like, why? Like, why aren't you doing this? And I think He seems to appreciate those kind of questions, like in different Psalms where. David asks about that, it seems like that actually brings David and God closer in some ways and makes their relationship more like honest and meaningful. And I think just like asking the question could potentially maybe be powerful and how that, again, like other people have said, opens up your mind to maybe the answers that you wouldn't have seen otherwise. So,
3: Well, in the pagan concept, the gods are powerful and therefore to be feared to some degree. You don't trust them to have your best interests in mind. You trust them to have their best interests in mind because they're just powerful extensions of human character. And so with the pagan gods, you take comfort in the fact that they don't know everything. Well, this pagan god doesn't know. You know, I was talking bad about him last night to my spouse or whatever. So you take comfort in the fact they don't know everything. With the true god, you can't take comfort in his lack of knowledge. This god knows everything you see. And therefore, it's critical what picture of God you have. Because if God knows everything and he's scary, he doesn't have your best interests in mind, you're in trouble because there's no getting away. On the other hand, if God is truly gracious and truly forgiving, etc., then there's some safety in coming out from your hiding because he knows anyway. He already knows. So there's no surprises. If you confess your sins, no surprise to God. He already knows. So not confessing makes no sense because it just means living in a fog of inauthenticity. So Livius, and then I'll summarize a bit on these points. Yeah.
6: What stood out to me in reading both of these is the 121 verse 1, from where does my help come? I see these as like just a small little window into God, who he is, what he does. And if I decide to go it alone, I kind of miss out on all this stuff. I kind of reject everything that he's able to do, who he is. And to me, I see this as a contrast between maybe selfishness and other-centeredness, because I can't help myself. I need someone to sustain me, to sustain my life. And, yeah, a big highlight is where does my help come from? Where does my help come from?
3: These Psalms together, it seems to me, share three things about God. First of all, God knows everything that there is to know. So there's no secrets. And at the same time, there's no trouble you can get into that he doesn't know. So God knows everything. It also indicates that he is powerful enough to help. But there's still one more thing we need to know. Does he want to? You see, Is he that good? And these Psalms tell us, first of all, God knows everything. Second, he's powerful enough to make a difference. Third, he wants to do it. He wants to be part of our lives. He wants to make a difference for us. And I was just thinking that the qualities of a true friend, the kind of friend that can raise your self-worth from the dumps, would be somebody who knows all about you, yet loves you just the same. Because most of our human friends don't know all there is to know about us, and we probably are anxious not to tell them because we fear that if we tell them everything, they'll reject us. But if they only knew that, then we're done, okay? But as someone who knows everything there is to know about you and loves you just the same, that's a safe person to be, a safe person to be with. But it's two other qualities that are necessary. And one is that that person be truly valuable in themselves, truly somebody whose worth can come across to you. And God is valuable, truly valuable in the sense that God created everything. God is worth the entire universe. And so God knows all about you, loves you just the way you are, is worth the entire universe, and will never die, will never leave you, will never forsake you. So the ideal friend is someone who knows all about you, loves you as you are, is infinitely valuable, and will never die. If you have that kind of a friend, there's no more ups and downs. There's no more fear for the future. You're secure in that friendship, and it's one that can never be taken from you. And that, I think, explains the tremendous survival of Christianity in spite of all the challenges, is that too many people just say, without Jesus, without God, I couldn't live. Because that friendship is so critical to who I am and everything that I can become. So the Psalms here have helped us to see and clarify a picture of God that I think makes a difference every day. But let's come to one of the most problematic Psalms. And not problematic in the sense that it's depressing, like some of the others, but problematic in what it's saying. Psalm 91, and verses 2 to 7. Starting with Psalm 91, verse 2.
1: We'll say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions And under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, or the arrows that fly by day, or the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, or the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you.
3: All right, so here's a psalm that essentially promises that. If you're on the front lines in Bakhmut, the bullets will fly, but they won't strike you. A thousand may fall at your side, but it won't harm you. And then I think of the elder of the church in New York City where I grew up, now called the Advent Hope Church. Uh, The elder of that church was a banker who was involved with a company called Cantor Fitzgerald, which had hundreds of employees on the top floors of the North Tower of the World Trade Center. He's never been found, not even DNA, not even dust. No trace of him has ever been found, but he went to work that day on the 104th floor and never returned. So how does Psalm 91 fit in there? And for the sake of time, rather than wrestling with it, that would be, I think, a wonderful discussion. But let me just say that to take the Bible as it reads works only in a whole Bible. If you take Psalm 91 and extract it from the scriptures and make that your daily motto, as many of us have probably done through the years, it is a misapplication. It is taking a part and treating it as the whole. In fact, that's exactly what Job's friends were telling him. The book of Job is right in the wheelhouse here because the friends were saying Psalm 91 and Satan (laughs) was saying Psalm 91. Jesus. You know, there's no harm can come to you if you jump off here because God will protect you. You're righteous, etc. And so Job's friends were telling him, you must be to blame for your suffering because if you were truly righteous, nothing would come to you. So you see, one of the challenges of the Psalms is taking bits and pieces by themselves. They can be misapplied and do a great deal of harm. And so I appreciate very much that the lesson has brought us into this world and invited us to wrestle with it at a very deep level. And we might as well go to Matthew 4 and verses 5 through 7 so that we can see another perspective on all this.
1: Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test.
3: All right, so here you see Satan delighting in this particular scripture, and others like it that he was challenging Jesus to put inappropriate expectations on God so jump off this building and god has promised you know are there other ways that the psalms can be misused or have been misused in your experience have there been times when one of the psalms has been trying to give you some false hope in a very difficult situation or a passionate certitude at a time when you don't feel any certitude. It seems to me that, like the Proverbs, with many of the Psalms, we have to bring in the concept of all other things being equal. All other things being equal. All other things being equal, God will protect you in every time and place. That's the God of eternity that we anticipate, eternal life. But in this life, things are not equal. And there are circumstances and issues and so on that may cause things to happen in a very different way than perhaps we would like, but psalm ninety one strikes us in the face and says, "Wait a minute, but life isn't always like that, and you will also be like other psalmists struggling with God's absence and God's silence and God's seeming inaction. But I would point out one thing: well God is seemingly Not acting. In another sense, God is always acting. We would not breathe one moment longer if God were not sustaining our life. We are not immortal. Our life is sustained by God. He intimately knows every detail, and that's how he can do that. And so, if we're alive today, God is active. If to answer the question, why doesn't God do something? Well, he's doing something all the time. He's just not doing what you expect him to do at this particular moment. What I see the psalmist saying, and I think this is really exciting, is that God's creative power can make a difference in your life. And in the New Testament, it's the power of the resurrection. The power that God exercised in raising Jesus from the dead is the same power that sustains our lives and enables us to become more and more like him. But at the same time, we live in a world where the new and the old are mixed together. The future and the present are mixed together. Let's close with one more text, and that's 1 Corinthians 10 and verses 1 to 4. You see that at number 5. 1 Corinthians 10 and verses 1 to 4.
1: I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ.
3: So here we see that the Psalms, as well as the Exodus, as well as the creation, are all messages to us as well. Here, Paul is addressing many Gentile Christians, and he talks about our forefathers, our history. So in Jesus Christ, the history of Israel has become your history. The experience of the Psalms has become your experience. And so with that in mind, then We see in the Psalms the full gamut of life experience that we come to know ourselves. And in interacting with them, it can be troubling, it can be challenging, but this is the way we get to know God better and ourselves as well. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the Psalms, probably not the way we would have written the Bible if it had been our decision to do so. But Lord, you have helped us to see ourselves and to see you in a fresh way. And for that, we are grateful
8: in Jesus name. Amen.